0: Welcome to Walking in Place, this is Ashley and today we will be walking in St. Patrick's Ward because yesterday was St. Patrick's Day and I've always noticed that there are a number of things in this area named after St. Patrick and I wanted to know why. Man, did I get my answer and then some. The short answer is because it was a ward in Toronto in the early days of the city, but I'm not in a short answer kind of mood, so let's get into it. If you've listened to this podcast for a while or if you've looked into any of the history of Toronto, then you'll notice that sometimes it was referred to as the Town of York. John Graves Simcoe, the Lieutenant Governor, named this area the Town of York after Prince Frederick, the Duke of York. They were using this area as a temporary capital of Upper Canada while he was scoping out what is now London, Ontario. That was going to be the capital. and. It didn't pan out so they decided to make the town of york the capital of upper canada and they wanted a new name for it to set it apart from new york so they called it toronto after the mohawk word tokarano even though the Haudenosaunee and the huron-wendat had used that word for centuries at that point and Simcoe was aware of the word even when he first got here uh, for that reason and also because there was even a fort named toronto i think centuries before the british settled in this area initially he didn't want to to name the city after an indigenous word. And now that it was the city of Toronto or like the old city of Toronto, it's this official city. It needs a more formal government. So it divided the town into five municipal wards and they named those words after the patron saints of the countries that are part of the United Kingdom and uh, the patron saint of Canada, which is St. Lawrence. We've walked in that neighborhood and it's the only neighborhood that still goes by its initial name. Yeah, and that's why it's the patron saint of Canada because Jacques Cartier uh, quote-unquote discovered the river that we now call the St. Lawrence River and named it after St. Lawrence. Another random fact, St. Lawrence is also the patron saint of librarians, chefs, miners, and students. And by miners, I mean people who work in the mine, not uh, people underage. <laughs> So I bet you're dying to know what those five patron saints are. So these are the five wards. St. David is the patron saint of Wales, St. Andrew of Scotland, St. George of England, and of course, St. Patrick of Ireland. You might be surprised to know that I don't think about saints (laughs) all that often. And I kind of forgot that performing miracles is kind of a big part of even being considered become a saint and i was surprised to learn that most of these guys are mostly known for the miracle of raising people from the dead which to me seems like a pretty big deal and surprising that you don't hear about it that much it's always like jesus this jesus that jesus rose from the dead but like what about all these other no names who came back to life i want to know their stories maybe it's in the bible i've never read the bible i don't know there should be a movie about that they weren't just you know walking around raising people from the dead some of them did have some other miracles that they were known for saint david of wales was known for making a hill rise out of a field he was preaching in so that people could hear him better which in my opinion sounds a little you know self-serving but then again i'm currently crouching over a microphone in a closet alone so what do i know and then yeah saint patrick his miracle is why he's now considered the patron saint of ireland and why we're here He was actually born in Britain and sold into slavery in Ireland way back in the 4th century. He became religious while enslaved and turned to prayer often, and eventually was able to escape following what he believed were signs from God. He took on the name Patricius, or Patricius, I don't know how you might pronounce that in the 4th century, and he felt that it was his calling to convert people to Christianity, and eventually he went back to Ireland to do just that. He would use a shamrock, so, you know a three-leafed clover to explain the concept of the holy trinity to people and as the story goes one day he set himself up on a hill so that he could fast for 40 days and a snake i guess just rubbed him the wrong way one day and pissed him off and he just banished all the snakes in ireland to the sea because being hangry can make you do extreme things sometimes this is the miracle he was most known for but in reality there were never any snakes in ireland it's actually just a symbol for his success in converting the the druids who were the religious leaders in ireland at the time their symbol was the snake okay friends let's start the tour shall we we are going to start at saint patrick's subway station i went at a very quiet time to avoid people because you know covid don't feel pressure to go if you if you don't feel safe regardless in in the world of this podcast i will meet you there in 30 seconds So this is the first time I've been in a subway station for almost a year to the day. And it was really surreal. I've always liked the station because the whole station from the hallways to the fair gates to the platform, the whole thing, it's covered in these green tiles. And I just thought that was such a fun choice given the name of the station. I learned that the color choice of this and a lot of the other stations that were built in the 60s were chosen specifically to be muted and boring and institutional feeling in order to discourage rowdy behavior. (laughs) And I read that some people used to complain that they looked like public bathrooms. I thought that the colors of some tiles would (laughs) discourage people from hanging out and partying in in the subway station. The name of the station is St. Patrick's because of the nearby St. Patrick's Church, which we'll be visiting later today. In the 70s, the AGO had requested to rename the station Art Gallery Station because it's the closest station to the AGO. If you don't know, the AGO is the Art Gallery of Ontario. But there was a public outcry and even the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Toronto objected to it and the AGO ended up withdrawing their application and it has stayed St. Patrick's to this day in the 60s when this was built it was built around the same time as queens park station these two stations queens park and st patrick's fall in between museum station and osgood station so those two stations were already there and they wanted to add more stops between the two stations and the way they decided to build these two specific stations is unique compared to the rest of toronto you might notice the shape of the subway platform here as well as at queens park is that it's very tubular right it's like a giant half circle basically where on one side of the curve is one direction of the subway and the other side is the other and in that middle area is where you walk through or where you can get the escalator and the reason it's that way is because they used only for these two stations a tunnel boring machine which is also called a mole (laughs) which is kind of funny i'm assuming it's called that because it just burrows through the ground right like it just creates this path this channel right underneath the ground without needing to break the surface and they use this machine to dig this tubular shape and then they just built everything that goes inside the subway platform around the new tunnel They chose this method for these two stations because it causes a lot less disruption to traffic above ground. And there was a lot of traffic in this area. I mean, we're right in downtown Toronto. The other method that they've used and that they ended up continuing to use for the rest of the subway stations is called cut and cover, which is what we still see to this day. It's what it sounds like. You block off the street and you dig into either side of the street and then you kind of just keep chipping away and going inwards and downwards. So this way they don't have to to dig down, right? They're just setting this machine down through to to make the tunnel for you. But it's really expensive. And that's the only reason why they never used it again. These two stations are the only ones without shape for this reason they decided to continue using that cut and cover method and i even read that the choice of having a lot of the other subway stations that were built above Bloor was because it would cause less of a disruption to traffic up there since there was less traffic up there at the time which i feel is so counterintuitive to like choose to put subway stations where there are less people so that you're disrupting traffic less when the whole solution that a subway is supposed to bring you is to eventually solve for above ground traffic you know what i mean like you're choosing to alleviate the traffic in an already low traffic area because you don't want to disrupt the high traffic area so instead you have subways in a low traffic area and the high traffic area still doesn't have subways just doesn't make any sense it's just so toronto couple last things I want to point out. Uh, One is nice and one is not so nice. So I'm going to start with the not so nice one. This story does involve violence against women. If you want to skip over that, it's about two and a half minutes long. So jump that far ahead you ever notice when you get off the escalator or you're getting onto the escalator at St. Patrick's that middle area that's open where you can cross between the two platforms or just get onto the escalator has these like arched pillars that go along with the curvature of the platform. The further you go you might notice that there continue to be those arched pillars but deeper down on the platform they are not open the way they are elsewhere so you can't walk through them because they're blocked off with these like white tiled walls that are very just straight filling up the space i've never really thought about them too much but when you like look at it it does stand out because everything else is so green and so curved and these are just white and straight before 1975 they were open in 1975 a teenage girl named Miriam peters was heading home from saint patrick station and someone attacked her and stabbed her 16 times from what i read she was likely waiting at that further end of the station and someone was like hiding behind one of those pillars and since it's so deep into the platform it's a lot less visible to people who might have just been coming off the escalator or chose to stand closer to the escalator She tried to get to the top of the platform, but she was found on the escalator. And a few days later, she passed away from her injuries. At the time, they didn't have cameras or security measures like that in any of the subway stations. They just figured out that that must have been the only way that someone was able to to attack her. That must have been their only hiding space. So they decided to block off those sections. People all over town were horrified that this could have happened. Her mother started a petition for them to secure cameras to be installed in the station. But again, they didn't have budget. So they implemented other security measures that were less costly, such as those, those walls. They also had police patrol the station. Of course, <laughs> that is the beginning of having police presence at subway stations was because of this incident. They also installed emergency phones and alarms. And they made similar adjustments to Queens Park Station since, you know, it has the same, the same design, the same shape. So now the main openings are in the center of St. Patrick, uh, closer to the escalators, since that is where the majority of people are going to be. It's also relatively close to the fare collectors, so they can keep an eye on what's going on, at least back in the day, because there, there are cameras in the stations now. So that was the not so nice thing. Now for the a bit nicer thing. In 2017, the TTC outlined that there was a number of stations that needed upgrades. Some of them had rusty areas or paint peeling or chipped tiles, and St. Patrick's was one of them. As they were making these upgrades, they also commissioned public artworks to be installed permanently at the stations. And at St. Patrick's Station, it's a mural called Many Little Plans, created by the artist Barbara Todd. It was inspired by the urban activist Jane Jacobs, who lived in Toronto for a long time. Definitely look her up if you're interested in this podcast. <laughs> The artwork itself is 400 ceramic tiles installed into the different alcoves on the subway platform and each of them have a silhouette of a person that were modeled after a bunch of different subjects, people who live in Toronto and uh, represent different age groups, genders, ethnicities, walks of life, the diversity of Toronto. That's all I have to say about St. Patrick's Station. Now we're going to head to St. Patrick Street, which is also named after the church. To get there, you walk west on Dundas Street and then turn left on St. Patrick Street. I'll see you there in 30 seconds. We are now on St. Patrick Street. I'd like you to walk south uh, towards Queen Street as we talk. Most of what I'm going to point out to you is closer to Queen Street. So as we walk, I'm going to tell you about something else that was named after St. Patrick. In Toronto, If you're a sports fan, then you probably already know this, but it was news to me <laughs> that the Toronto Maple Leafs were initially called the Toronto St. Patrick's for a period of time. The team itself actually started as the Toronto Arenas, but after falling into some financial issues and getting taken over by new ownership, it was changed to the Toronto St. Patrick's in 1919. And that choice was made, apparently an attempt to draw in the Irish population of Toronto to come to the home games. There were a lot of Irish people in Toronto at the time. They changed the Jersey color from blue to green even. They really went hard on the theme. In 1921, the St. Patrick's won the Stanley Cup, which is the only time that they won the Stanley Cup under that name. They were only the Toronto St. Patrick's for a little under 10 years. In 1927, they were bought by a new owner and named the Toronto Maple Leafs. After a World War One fighter unit called the Maple Leaf Regiment, they changed the colors back to blue and white, and it's stuck since then. So if you're getting close to Queen Street now, I suggest being on the east side of the street because you're gonna wanna get a look at 54 St. Patrick Street, which is on the west side of the street. I say 54, but really the address is 54 and a half. And if you're there and you're looking at it, you might have a guess why because 54 and a half looks like half of a house and it is a half house it's actually called the toronto half house if you look it up you know there are other definitions for half houses but this one is truly the most literal because it it does look like a victorian house that was cut right down the middle with a knife And that's honestly pretty much what happened. From what I can tell, this house was initially part of a set of Victorian row houses that were built in the 1890s. It had the houses to the left of it now, and it also had a house to the right of it. In the 50s, a lot of this block was getting purchased up by a holdings company, the same one that developed Village by the Grange. The row of houses were duplexes all lined up really closely together but still duplexes owning one of these houses is really owning half of one of the structures of these houses and the owner of this half of 54 didn't want to sell to that holding company their intentions with these houses were to demolish them and rebuild them they went ahead with their plans and they just really cleanly cut the other half of this house out now it's a driveway and when you're looking straight at it it would have been a very symmetrical looking house. So you can pretty easily picture what it would look like if if the other half of it was still there. So we're gonna keep walking towards Queen and at the corner of St. Patrick's and Queen is the Rex Hotel, an iconic jazz venue in Toronto. I had a hard time finding firm dates and information on the history of this corner. From what I can tell this, this area, like this kind of chunk of buildings at least that is now all part of the Rex has been in use as a hotel and beer hall since the early 1900s for a time a big chunk of this corner was owned by a man named leo hertzman he owned a clothing store called united clothing stores this was one location of a few stores I found a picture of it in the in the 30s but it looks like in the 60s the store left and what is now the Rex expanded their beer hall into that space and ever since then this whole space has been a hotel and music venue in the early days the back of the tavern was separated into two there was a side for men and another for ladies and escorts in that era most of the traffic on Queen Street was the working class, like people working at warehouses and factories and the industrial and like post industrial boom of, of the city. So this was one of the places that they would come in for lunch or for a drink after work that stuck for for years and years and years they they only started booking music in the 80s because queen west in general was becoming more of a social space and there were more clubs being set up and and nightlife was growing here even though they're now known very much as being a jazz venue they would book mostly rockabilly and like country-ish music at the time And it wasn't until um, some of the musicians from a nearby jazz spot called Bourbon Street and Basement Street, some of those musicians started coming between sets because apparently the beer was cheaper. At one point, this renowned Canadian sax player named DT Thompson came in and was just walking around the room, just going off on his sax, playing the Saints Go Marching In, of all things and the crowd loved it. I guess they just got a taste for jazz and the owner started booking jazz musicians and over time it became a really popular and almost exclusively jazz venue. And it's been that way for decades. Before the pandemic, they had about 99 performances a week or something like that, which is something that they had been doing for a very long time. They're known for having seasoned musicians and new musicians. They 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 have them all. And so it's great. It's a great opportunity for people to to meet and work with each other, as well as for people to come and listen to jazz. All right. Now that we're on Queen, we're going to head west on Queen Street. We're not going to go too far. Stop at 238 Queen Street West and I'll see you there. We are now standing at 238 Queen Street West on the north side of the street, just west of St. Patrick Street. If you look at the building, it's, you know, it's an old building. It's got one story. If you look inside, it's very empty and there's a sign on the front of the building that says Queen Live Fresh Food Market. But if you look a little bit above that, you can see the word market engraved into the very top of the building because this building has been a market since 1854. And can you guess what the name of that market was? Yeah. It's St. Patrick's Market. St. Patrick's Market was the second public market opened in Toronto, St. Lawrence being the first. As the city was growing, more and more people were settling in the west parts of the city, and they needed another market to address their needs for fresh food. It was never as popular as St. Lawrence, and it wasn't even as popular as the third market that was built, which was called St. Andrews. Yet, for its entire lifespan, it has been used as a market. It didn't always stay st patrick's market in the 80s it was known as the chicken market because it was owned by a company called stork and sons who specialized in poultry and chicken and it does make me wonder like was their name stork or is it a joke historic poultry <laughs> these are the questions that come to mind for me but yeah and as we can see today it's still owned by and was recently used as a market by queen live markets you might be wondering like how has it always been used as a market like how is this building still here how is it not being used for anything else but a market at this point of time like queen street is filled with concert halls and stores and restaurants like how is this building not being used for one of those things well i have an answer for that when this was first built it was built on land donated by darcy bolton jr who lived at the grange which is a old home that is now part of the ago and we'll talk about that in a little bit his property initially extended from queen street to bloor street so he had a huge plot of land and his house was built right dead center in it at this point in history he was dividing up his lot to sell or in you know some cases donate and he decided to Donate this part of the land to build a market, knowing that the city was looking to build another market. His family, by the way, the Bolton family, was part of the Family Compact, which is, as I've mentioned on other episodes, a group of really influential elite in Toronto at the time who were hoping to hold on to those powers and use them to make decisions for the city versus like having a more democratic system or what was called a responsible government. Yeah, he was on the side of the people who were hoping to become, like, the aristocracy in Toronto. So he donated land for this market he also donated land for st george the martyr church which we'll walk by soon and speak about he gave land to be used for the university of toronto which is not on this walk it is further north of this area the reason he did this wasn't a charitable reason really he was going through some financial difficulties at the time and the value of the land would go up if it had things like a market or a church on on the land that was his game plan there and in addition to that he stipulated that the land was used exclusively as a market open to the public in perpetuity that's why for the almost 200 years this building has been here it has always been used as a market otherwise if the city didn't use it in that way its ownership would revert back to the heirs of the bolton estate just to the right of the building on the east side there's a little walkway that we're going to walk down now If you, if you look up really like there's a street sign that says St. Patrick's square, so you're not trespassing. (laughs) So just walk down St. Patrick's square, this little alleyway, um, along the side of St. Patrick's market. And it opens up to the back of the building. You can take a look. This was part of the land that was allocated to the market. It's just a little park, a little square behind it. You can see the back of the building too. That's where I got my best glimpses of the inside of the building. Then we'll head over to our next stop, which is at 15 Stephanie Street. Just keep walking up St. Patrick Square until you get to Stephanie Street. It intersects it. We'll stand in front of 15 Stephanie Street. 15 Stephanie Street, the Harrison Pool. This is kind of a random one that I've thrown in, but I really liked the story behind this pool, so here we are. It kind of just looks like any old city building. doesn't even necessarily look like a pool right away, but it is. And it was opened in 1909. So this pool has been here for over a hundred years. It was originally at number three, Stephanie street, closer to McCall, but during the first world war, they moved it over here. I don't have more details on that. It seems like quite an endeavor to move a pool, but that's what I read. It was called the Harrison baths. It had separate entrances and sections for men and women. It had a 26 by 60 foot pool, as well as laundry facilities. People were charged five cents to access the showers in the bath and 10 cents to swim in the pool. They got to do laundry for free. It was a, it was a really popular place to be for people in the neighborhood. Uh, when it first opened, over 2,000 people visited. In the summer, there would be full-on lines outside. So this pool was not set up for recreation and leisure but as a bathing facility for the impoverished and largely immigrant community who lived in this area. By this time in Toronto, the population was growing pretty quickly and the five wards had been divided into even more wards. And just east of here was St. John's Ward, also just known as The Ward. It was one of the first places that the growing immigrant population were settling into. It was extremely impoverished, um, known for slums, and uh, was also home to the first black neighborhood in Toronto. So there's a lot of history there and I'm gonna do a whole other episode on that ward someday. But for now, what we need to know is that because that area was so impoverished, a lot of them didn't have plumbing and didn't have a place to wash their clothes or wash their bodies. And that is how this facility got put into place. Though it wasn't purely a charitable or altruistic move, this alderman whose last name is Harrison, the one who ended up building this public bath, he put this proposal forward so there would be somewhere for for them to bathe. It's grounded in this theory, really popular at the time, called the social reformist movement. I, I've talked about it before in, in the Queen West episode. Basically, it's like trying to solve poverty as if it's an aesthetic issue. Its roots, anyway, are grounded in this patronizing view of, oh, we've got, you know, these smelly poor people on the street and with dirty clothes. We can't have that. Like, how do we how do we fix that? Oh, okay, we'll build a common bathhouse for them to use to clean themselves and their clothes, and then we'll leave it at that. Now they'll have somewhere to do that instead of, oh, maybe we should figure out a way to get these homes plumbing. <laughs> Yeah. it's less about how can we make living conditions for people better in the city and more about like how can we have everyone in the city looking like they're taken care of even when they're not. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, loads of people were using it. It was needed. Communities of the ward, many of whom were newcomers to Canada who didn't have a lot of money, who relied very much on... You know their relationships with their communities like this became an an important meeting place and community space for them as well as a place for them to to bathe and to clean but i can't help but be a little bit salty about the notion behind its creation so that's the harrison baths then the other part of this stop turn around if you look at the north side of the street and just walk west we're looking at saint george the martyr the church that is built on the property of the grange as soon as you enter the entrance to the Grange Park just off John Street, you can see a good view of the Grange. It's directly in front of the entranceway to the Grange Park. The front of St. George is facing west and it's on the right side of this entranceway. And like I mentioned earlier, Darcy Bolton provided this part of his property to. Uh, have a church built it was built in 1844 and it's an anglican church it's actually built by the same architect as toronto's first city hall on front street so the st lawrence market building as we know it today it's a gothic style church and it's named after st george the martyr (laughs) of course (laughs) who is the patron saint of england like we spoke about earlier he's also the patron saint of crusaders interestingly enough it used to have a huge spire above the entrance, like 100 150 feet tall. And apparently it helped ships. They were entering the Toronto Harbor. That's how tall it was. It was really popular. It had a really large congregation. Over time, attendance started to drop as the neighborhood became a little bit more diverse and the Anglican community wasn't as dominant. In the 1950s, a fire demolished a lot of the church. From what I read, the only things that survived were the rectory and the tower, so not the spire, the spire burned down. They tend to do that, don't they? <laughs> Every big church with a spire has a story about it burning down. And if you look at the tower, um, you can see a little like plaque on it that says 1844, Which is cool. They rebuilt the church after the fire. It was the Italian community who were most involved with doing that work and restoring it. So if you want to walk towards the Grange, I'll also point out a building that is just next to St. George the Martyr called the University Settlement. It was the very first community-based social service center in Toronto and it was opened in 1910. Settlement houses, they have services for the community, they have exercise facilities, services that help people find housing or jobs or learn English. It's there to support the community as well as newcomers, which makes sense. It was opened in 1910, around the time when this area was becoming more and more populated by newcomers. Overall, definitely great that it's here and that it has been here. It is a settlement house, so its its founding is part of that social reformist movement that I was talking about with the pool and that i talked about with West Neighborhood House. Settlement houses were based off of the theory of having the middle class and the poor class living really closely together and having the middle class kind of facilitate services to help lift up or integrate the poor, teaching them quote-unquote proper English and like how to be how to follow the social norms i again i'm really not saying that these things have shallow intentions the way they may have in the past but it is an interesting history to think about all right now we're finally gonna go talk about the grange walk up to that old building can't miss it just straight ahead and i'll meet you there We've walked through the Grange Park, which is a public park. And I just want to call out really quickly, OCAD, which is another building that you might've noticed as you walked. It's a pretty unmistakable building. From this angle, you're seeing the side and back of the building. It looks like it's held up by these big red sticks. And the piece that those sticks are holding up is covered in this like checkered pattern of really reflective glass and like darker glass. It's really cool. You didn't know that's the back of OCAD which is the Ontario College of Art and Design. couple quick facts about OCAD. Part of their facility is using some of the buildings from the Grange, from what I understand. OCAD was first established in 1876 by the Ontario Society of Artists, and it was initially just called the Ontario School of Art, and then they became the College of Art, and then they added design, and then in 2010 it became a university. Uh, Technically, it wasn't always at this location. They only actually secured this building for OCAD in 1921. Anyways, so that's just... A little bit of background on ocad like you might not have known how old ocad actually is but back to the grange so speaking of old the grange is one of the oldest buildings in toronto it was built in 1817 so it's over 200 years old at this point if you're not standing there it's what they call a georgian style house which was really popular in england it's basically just very flat and symmetrical it's supposed to be a more modest style house but like i mentioned darcy bolton and his wife sarah were you know part of that family compact group so part of the group of people who fancied themselves the aristocracy so on the outside it was fairly modest because of this Georgian style but it had like the works on the inside and it was known for being quite lavish they were you know part of the city's elite and his wife was known as being a great entertainer so they had all of the city's like big shots over all of the time they had big parties this park, like the grassy area in front of the Grange was their front yard and it's where they used to host garden parties the land behind them their property went up close to Bloor included an orchard and some other gardens John Street from Stephanie to Queen Street was actually the carriageway that went into the property and the gates of the property were at Queen Street so Darcy Bolton the owner of this house in his career he worked mostly in government you know influential position he had three different posts in government and he also ran a dry goods store uh, randomly and things were going really well for a while but in in 1846 uh, the family had gone through a lot um, a lot of people in the family had passed away there had been the cholera epidemic and there was just a lot of financial strain going on which is part of why he was doing that subdivision of his property but when he died that financial strain wasn't completely resolved and his wife Sarah his widow put the house and the land around it in a trust for her daughter-in-law Harriet as part of the marriage agreement harriet was marrying their son william henry bolton and when sarah died when his mom died he and harriet lived at the grange william was the mayor of toronto three times and uh he was also part of the legislative assembly they never had children and he ended up passing away and harriet remarried married this guy named goldwin smith who was a british scholar and political writer and they lived together in this home it's kind of funny how this like Elitist family built this grand property and within like one generation, it ended up being owned by two people who had no blood relation to that family whatsoever. Harriet and her new husband decided to donate the front lawn to the city for use as a public park. And then eventually, Harriet ended up bequeathing the house to the Art Museum of Toronto, which is now the AGO. The AGO uses it for exhibits. There's also a cafe that is in part of this property right behind the main building is a very very tall extension this like bluish reflective glass with a like silvery metal spiral staircase coming out of it it just looks like a twirl really because it's an enclosed staircase and that was designed by an architect named frank Gehry who is still alive today, he's 92 years old. He, these changes actually happened in, um, from 2004 to 2008. He's responsible for that, for this design in the back of the building, but also for the front of the building. We'll see more later. We're not gonna include this in the walk, but if you're a big architecture fan, if you're a fan of his, his childhood home is actually just on Beverly Street, which is to the west here. He used to live at 15 Beverly Street. Right now it's a big condo building, so (laughs) the home he actually grew up in is no longer there. But it's kind of interesting to think that. At his childhood home was literally down the block from this huge project that he ended up working on. Speaking of Beverly Street, we are gonna head over there. We're just gonna walk as far south as Phoebe Street and on our way we'll be passing the off dog park so if you want to check out some dogs it's a great time to do that. We are standing now at Phoebe and Beverly Street. What we're going to look at here is across the street at the row of houses from 40 to 50 Beverly Street, a very beige row of houses. If you're an architecture fan, it's a rare instance of the style of housing in Toronto. For a very long time, Toronto houses were set up as duplexes that were really, really close together that so that they looked like a row of houses, but they weren't actually a connected row of houses, which was different from like New York and London, where it was legit townhouses that were fully connected. And Toronto, for the most part, had either these like duplexes or Bay and Gable style Victorian houses. This row of houses has Bay and Gable elements to it, but they're all connected into a townhouse. Not something you see very often in Toronto. The main reason I thought it would be fun to walk by these houses is because each of them have little plaques that said Grange Historical Society, 1893, with the names of the previous owners. And in some cases, you can see their previous occupation as well. Honestly, I couldn't find too much about the people who lived in those houses. For the most part, they just had pretty regular jobs. And something about that is just kind of interesting to me, that right across the street from the Grange are these homes that belong to just regular old people. Like middle class, like upper middle class, I would say. There is one that used to be owned by a woman named Mary Nisha, who's just written down as a widow. There is one that used to be owned by Alexander J. Close, who was a broker. There is an Albert Ogden, a lawyer, and an M. Paul, a salesman. Not sure what he sold, but he was a salesman. And then there's also David Shaw, who's listed as a historical traveler, which got me curious. The first thing that came to mind, which obviously wasn't his job, but the first thing that came to mind was that he was able to travel through time. <laughs> but when I looked up historical travel sadly it just means traveling to places you know specifically chosen because of their historical significance kind of funny because it's like does that mean i'm a historical traveler (laughs) does that mean we are historical travelers in this podcast i don't know but maybe i'll put it on my resume we're going to keep walking north up Beverly Street and then turn left when we get to Sullivan. If you remember from the Casa Loma episode, uh, the street names Phoebe and Sullivan are linked to William Baldwin, who was the owner of Spadina House that's near Casa Loma. He ended up owning a lot of the property in this area at a point in time, and his wife's name was Phoebe. His daughter-in-law was Augusta Elizabeth Sullivan. So Sullivan is named after her as well as Augusta, which is in Kensington Market not too far from here. Another thing you'll notice about these street signs is that there is a Chinese translation on a lot of them, and that's because we are just to the east of the present-day Chinatown. The original and first Chinatown was actually in St. John's Ward, where the current Toronto City Hall is and Nathan Phillips Square is, but they moved that first Chinatown over to Spadina. Yeah, and I mean, along that, those lines, you'll also notice at the corner of Sullivan and Beverly is the Toronto Chinese Baptist Church. Um, They've had this congregation going since the 60s. The next little stop I wanted to call out is actually really close by. So I'm I'm not going to give you a 30 second break. I'm just going to keep yammering in your ear. If you have now turned left on Sullivan, turn right on Grange place. It'll be immediate. It'll be the first little street you see. And then you'll be walking in these like alleyways, which is very, you know, iconic Toronto behind rows of houses. You can find another little street and long alleyways lined by garages for those houses. And there's a street that intersects Grange place. That's called, orphanage muse which is what I wanted to talk about really quickly. In 2011 an application was submitted by one of the owners in this area to called the street orphanage muse because they discovered that the first orphanage of the city used to be on this street it was called the protestant orphans home and initially was opened on bay street in 1852 but then two years later it moved over here because they needed more space unfortunately um to accommodate the number of children who needed to be taken into the care of an orphanage uh i just thought that was a cool fact Okay, uh, keep walking straight on Grange Place until you get to the next intersecting street and then turn right to get back to Beverly. Keep walking north on Beverly, crossing Dundas Street until you get to 136 Beverly Street. We are at 136 beverly street also known as chudley and currently the italian consulate of toronto It's a pretty impressive house. In terms of architecture, it's called Second Empire French, which was more popular in Quebec for a long time, but it crept its way into Toronto and became a lot more popular with the fancy rich people. This house was first built for and by George Beardmore, who was a tanner and leather merchant, a very rich man. He had a warehouse on Front Street as well, which we would have walked by on in the St. Lawrence episode. It's just across from the Flatiron building, and it has his name on it, Beardmore, more in big letters he named the home chudley after the village in england that he was born in he and his wife were known for hosting a lot of fancy parties at this place in the 1930s the house was bought by the italian community in the area and then later entrusted to the italian government But during the Second World War, the government confiscated the house and used it as a barracks for the RCMP. But then they returned it to the Italian government in the 50s. We're going to keep it moving, keep going up Beverly Street to 186. It's not going to take us long, so I'm just going to start talking about it now. 186 Beverly Street is built in a bit of a similar style. Chudley is more kind of yellowish beige color, and the building at 186 Beverly Street, which is called Lambden Lodge, is brown brick, and it has a black metal gate surrounding the property and trees on the outside of the gate. I was there after sunset on a Saturday night, and even though it's March, it really gave me fall halloween new england vibes which i was really into so Lambton lodge was the home of george brown the founder of the globe the newspaper and he was also a politician and was very pro responsible government so he was against the family compact he was also a really influential person involved in the confederation of canada so basically when canada officially became a country he had this house built in 1875 and he only really lived here for five years because he passed away after a disgruntled employee at the paper shot him in the leg and he got gangrene and died from what i understand he had a really big personality um, and he used his papers to promote a lot of his political ideas like for example in his paper He denounced slavery really openly and he actually helped found the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada whose members were a big part of the network of people helping former enslaved people escape to canada he also was really public about his hatred of catholicism and he often made fun of any and all aspects of catholicism and the people involved in catholicism to the point where in montreal there was a mob fight as a result of something he wrote in his paper and nine people (laughs) died as a result of that fight Now we're going to walk just east of here. The street that we've intersected here is Baldwin Street. So we're going to keep walking on Baldwin Street towards McCall. We're going to be walking through what is called Baldwin Village. Baldwin Street is named after William Warren Baldwin, who again was the owner of Spadina House. Baldwin Village initially was set up as kind of like an extension almost of the Kensington Market. So, Kensington Market, which isn't too far from here, started as a Jewish community. And the street, being pretty close to Kensington Market, is where a lot of the Jewish community lived. And they set up a lot of stores and little restaurants on on the street. And then over time, with Chinatown being so close by, it also became more and more populated by Chinese Canadians and a lot of their restaurants also started popping up on the street. So for a period of time, the businesses on the street were kind of shared by Chinese Canadians and by Jewish Canadians. It is still largely filled up by like restaurants and cafes. There's like Chinese restaurants, there's Japanese restaurants, there's Korean, Vietnamese. Majority of the restaurants seem to be from different Asian countries. Uh, One of the cafes has kept an homage to its Jewish history, the Yiddish lettering on their window. This is at 29 Baldwin Street, was the home to Mendel's Creamery, the Jewish restaurant that was there for 90 years. It closed in 1995. In the 60s, it was a really popular location for Americans to hide out in and avoid getting drafted into the Vietnam War. They also played a role in opening up restaurants and cafes in this area. So now we're going to keep walking east and turn right on McCall Street and stop when you get to St. Patrick's Church. Can't miss it, it's a big old church. I'll see you there. It's been a while since we spoke about something named after St. Patrick, so let's talk about St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church on McCall Street. It's the fifth oldest Roman Catholic parish in Toronto. It was first established in 1861, congregation, I guess, or the, the parish, but the building itself has been here since 1908. It's built in a Romanesque revival style, which to me, at least when I look at it, it's got like a Notre Dame feel to it. When I first saw the stairs leading up to the entrance, it reminded me so much of the stairs in the Disney movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is where quite Quasimodo's mother falls and drops him and she she dies <laughs> and that's where quasimodo is found for some reason that scene is very vivid in my childhood memories when i look at a picture of notre dame i'm not that far off like notre dame is obviously huge and far more grand and it has much taller towers and it has like or had i guess at this point the big spire and this church doesn't have a spire but it does have three main doors that have these big arches over them and stained glass above them and two towers on either side so it kind of looks like notre dame the main story i want to tell about this church is connected to its founding It was founded by the redemptorists which are a group of catholics who are driven mostly by doing missionary work if you're not familiar missions in missionary work is basically going to a specific place and trying to promote catholicism um, and set up a new catholic community basically they went to saint michael's church which is the old church near the eden center and were preaching there and then they were successful in their mission and they opened another catholic church here in toronto in saint patrick's ward i'm assuming that is why it was called saint patrick's the redemptorists are really big on this piece of art called the Mother of Perpetual Help, or it's also called the Lady of Perpetual Help. It was made in the 15th century. It depicts Mary and Jesus and a couple of archangels on it. Across the world, there are churches that are the official national shrines to this piece of art, and the Catholic Church creates these certified copies of the art that get taken into the ownership of designated Catholic churches. St. Patrick's is the national shrine to the Canadian certified copy of the Mother of Perpetual Help. I thought that was interesting. Now we are going to walk south on McCall Street and turn right on Dundas. That will be our last stop. All right, we are here at the AGO, our last stop. We've already talked a little bit about the AGO, and if I went into all of the things that we could talk about about the AGO, this episode would never end. (laughs) For now, I'll keep it to the basics, and then I'll leave you on just a funny story I found about it. The AGO was founded in the year 1900 by a group of private citizens. And like I mentioned earlier, it was called the Art Museum of Toronto at the time. In 1903, there was actually legislation passed to officially incorporate it and to give the museum the power to acquire land. I'm curious about how they exercised that power. I didn't find too much about it. For a long time, they operated mostly out of rental spaces until Harriet Bolton-Smith bequeathed the Grange to the museum. And she did this because Sir Edmund Walker, who was one of the founders of the museum, had given her the initial idea and had been trying to convince her to do that. (laughs) So obviously he was successful. He was the first president of the museum. And actually, when you go into the AGO where the famous wooden spiral staircase is, that area is called the Walker's Court and it's named after him. Some of his other co-founders are some of the most influential and high-status people in Toronto. So some of these names are Lady Eaton, Sir William Mackenzie, Hart A. Massey, Edmund Osler, Sir Henry M. Pellet. Big, big rich names and despite all of these rich people being the founding group they often had to appeal to the public like i just said they had to appeal to harriet to bequeath her property to them and later in 1924 they had to raise money amongst the public to build even more space which i find very interesting in terms of its role as like an art museum and as a gallery it's now one of the largest art museums in all of north america it has over 90,000 works in its collection the AGO was founded with the goal of showcasing Canadian and local art primarily and that's still a big part of the AGO's goal according to their site. When you look at their different collections, they do have a collection that is dedicated to Canadian art as well as a collection for Indigenous art. They, they also have a center for Indigenous and Canadian art that's called the JS McLean Center which is only three years old so it's pretty recent development. In that center, they cover indigenous art from like First Nations, Inuit, Métis, but also global indigenous art as well. They have a collection of European art, modern, contemporary they have an African art collection they have photography they have prints and drawings they have old books and they also have a collection called the Thompson collection donated by Ken Thompson in 2002 he donated his whole art collection the most significant private art collection in Canada ever it's 2,000 different pieces of art that he owned as you would expect from someone who owned 2,000 pieces of, of art and donated them yes he was very very rich <laughs> at the time of his death in 2006. He was listed by Forbes as the richest person in Canada and the ninth richest person in the world and his net worth was around 19.6 billion US dollars and he even had a fancy British title the second Baron Thompson of Fleet inherited from his father Roy Thompson the namesake for Roy Thompson Hall. There's so much more I want to say about the Thompson family but I'm going to save that for another episode. They remind me of the family on the TV show Succession Earlier, Frank Gary, the architect, was the one behind this protruding curved glass structure that comes out of the building, which is really cool. And also the wooden room that you can see through that window. All of that is meant to look like an overturned canoe. The last thing I want to leave you with is a funny story about a controversial piece of art that got acquired, uh, by the AGO in the sixties. Then I will stop talking and let you go on with your day. So the piece of art was called the floor burger and it was bought from a gallery in New York in 1967 for $2,000. It was created by a pop art artist. I don't know. Would you call them a pop artist? I don't know. Anyway. So the pop art artist was named Claes Oldenburg, you know, Pop art is always something that's been made fun of because people think it's not original or it doesn't take a lot of skill to create. Those are the kind of critiques you hear about pop art. That was the issue that a lot of people had with the acquisition of this particular piece of art. Let me try to describe it to you. So if you took like three circular air mattresses and you didn't fill them quite all the way up, if you like you let them remain a little bit deflated so that they were kind of wrinkled and had creases and like dents in it and then you piled all three of those circular air mattress on top of each other to make it look like a burger two buns and and a burger and then you got a smaller flatter cushion and had that be like almost fully deflated and you sat that on top of the bun. Kind of like if you were for some reason to put a slice of a pickle on top of a bun, which I don't know why you would do that. That's what this looks like. These three big like air mattresses formed in the shape of a bun with the random deflated pickly thing on top. And it's big, like it's as big as, as a mattress students and teachers from the central from the art department of central technical school protested outside the ago when the floor burger was put into place as part of their protest they created a nine foot tall ketchup bottle (laughs) that they paraded around outside of the building which i think is hilarious and the pictures are really funny afterwards they even tried to donate the bottle to the ago and they got denied (laughs) yeah they they didn't accept the bottle because they didn't consider it an important or original piece of art Which is such a shame. I would love to go, I mean, I would love to go to the AGO regardless of what's in it at this point in time because it's been a year since we're allowed to go anywhere like that. I would love to go see a giant ketchup bottle used in a protest in the 60s. When they asked the artist how he felt about the protest, he said, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. My work is going to get old soon enough. Perhaps they will come my way. And then he added, they should have made the ketchup bottle out of something soft. There's just something about that that's so funny to me. And that's what I'll leave you with, the floor burger. Thank you so much for listening. As I've been saying the past few times, definitely check out the Instagram and Facebook to see pictures and videos of my walks. I post the route as well, usually the week following. I've been posting more on TikTok as well, so check that out. Uh, all of those places you can find me at Walking in Place Pod. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you could rate and review. And, you know, even subscribe if you're so inclined. Uh, yeah, and I'd love to hear from you. If you if you have any questions, suggestions, corrections, just send them my way on any of those social platforms. Thanks again. I will see you next time. Walking in Place is written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley McDonough. Thank you, Lucas Benoit, for the theme music, and Yasmin Najib for the beautiful artwork.